Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Hi, today joining us, we have Theta. Hi, Theta. Aloha. How are you, Behavior Babe? Aloha. I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Um, Let's get started by doing an introduction or a bio for the listeners, if you don't mind. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, I'm Theta. I'm a parent. I have three kids, two kids that are on the spectrum. Um, I have a 20-year-old who is really high-functioning, has Asperger's. Um, He goes to college. Um, And I have a 14-year-old who's very severe. He's like the poster child for severe child autism. And I have a 16-year-old who I don't really care about because he's typically developing. (laughs) Just kidding. I actually love them a lot. <laughs> I actually love them a lot. Um, and um, what else? I'm the vice president of the National Council on Severe Autism. It's a new nonprofit um, that I helped uh, start. And um, what it is is that we really just want to focus on um, policy and, you know, issues of those like families and individuals that are affected by severe autism. How did that come to, thank you for joining us today, but you said you helped found it. Um, I'm sure I can start to understand the need for something like that, but how do you, how did you go about finding or how did you guys get together and create that council? And um, what are some of the things the council has done so far? So the reason that we founded it is that we found that a lot of, um, the advocacy, whether it was like the the IACC, the President's Commission on, you know, autism and disabilities and things like that, and a lot of things have been kind of really, um, the direction they've been going is the people that have been put on them have autism, but they have very high-functioning autism. These people, like some of the people that are on there have law degrees and have finished college and things like that. And then they would um, say that they speak for the autism community as a whole. And what it is is that I feel like their needs are very different. I do not doubt at all that they have needs and they absolutely need support and lifelong support. But the needs are very different than the needs of, say, my son, who is nonverbal and things like that. Um, and is not able to speak for himself or advocate for themselves. So that's really what was the impetus for it. And I truly don't believe that one person or like a select few number of people with autism can speak for every single person with autism, because even though it's not a spectrum disorder anymore, um, and it's just like autism, but we know that people with autism are very, very different. And we just really wanted to bring that to light. And, you know, we don't see kids like my son, my 14-year-old son, Mohammed. I mean, you don't see people like him on TV. You see, like, the good doctor and, you know, uh, the Big Bang Theory and things like that. And 40% or more of the spectrum are not Sheldon, you know. And that's really what it is. I think, too, you know, there's a lot of, um, of reasons why it's uh, not the best I think, addressed area of the autism population, right? Severity is challenging. It's um, heartbreaking. It's difficult. But I know that we were talking recently um, about the, 
the great work that you did in California and that your that your family did in spearheading the autism insurance and how that really shifted the focus of you know behavior analysts or therapists with a school funding and school backgrounds and now we are much more looking at medical models can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience has been um, as a what I want to say as a parent, but also really just in your larger role with the community, what that change and transition has been like in California. The mandate passed in about, uh, about six, seven years ago. Before then, behavior analysts were all receiving their funding from 80 to 90% of the funding was from school districts and what we have is called the regional center. Um, and that's where all their funding came from. Now, in 2019, over 80% of all these, the funding for ABA is coming from health insurance, from private insurance funding. And, you know, along this line, because we're doing the medical model of ABA, I feel like we need to continue pursuing down that path. And within the medical model, it's doctors subspecialize. You know, you go to your pediatrician, if your kid constantly, like you have an ear infection, you take your kid to the pediatrician, and they'll just give you medicine. You'll see that pediatrician like once or something. But like if the kid is constantly getting ear infections, then they will, the pediatrician will send you to a specialist like an ENT doctor. And that's the thing is that that's what we need to pursue is that we need to have specialties in ABA. My son has severe problems behavior. He's aggressive, assaultive, has property destruction. Um, and we had lots of DCBAs that were working with him that tried, okay, but they couldn't work with him. They couldn't deal with his behavior. And so this is the reason it's like, well, who can? Who's going to be able to do, do, do this? And there's not a lot of BCBAs out there, actually, that, you know, they might have some experience or they learn about it, but they're not really dealing with kids. A lot of them that are older kids that have these problem behaviors. My son is 14 years old. He's 6'1". He's 260 pounds. You know, he's a big kid. And most of the BCBAs that I know are primarily early interventionists. And it's just kind of a different set of problems. So, you know, I was looking for somebody that really had experience in dealing with adolescents with severe problem behaviors. And it was really, really hard to find somebody that could do that. Wow. Um, as a behavior analyst myself, and I think about some of the experiences I've had, I have worked with pretty severe, intense, challenging situations. But to be quite honest, most of those children were no longer in their family home. Um, your son lives at home with you. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So I and I know from um, – people in the community, just how different some of those challenges can be when you're trying to respond to challenging behavior and you do not necessarily have a team of people or do not necessarily have, you know, your house equipped the way that a certain facility might or other structure. Um, I think that that presents a lot of unique challenges as well. And you um, had drawn my attention to a, a survey that had been done, right, that had looked at some of the, the places where people were working or where some of the treatment was occurring and I think a lot of that comes from um, the deinstitutionalization, right? We, we, there used to be a lot of individuals in institutions, and there's obviously a big shift in a lot of um, legal uh, findings and decisions that have made that change, and in a lot of ways for the better. 
but I do believe there are a lot of unique challenges. And can you talk to some of the ways in which that presents itself as a challenge or some ways in which people have found ways to, I guess what I'm asking is how do we support parents who are, who are in these situations? And some of the answer is we, we need to figure it out together. So exactly it. We do need to figure it out together. I mean, part of the reason, one of the, the big reason why, like I was dropped by my ABA agency because they couldn't deal with my son. And I think one of the, the issues is, is that this is the thing is that, Specialization is expensive. If you have a kid with severe problem behaviors, you need to have the BCBA here more on this case. You need to have the therapists that are better trained, all this stuff. And these, when you have a BCBA who is having to put more hours on a case with severe behavior, but the thing is they're getting paid the same as for a kid who is, you know, a three-year-old kid who's sitting on the table and touching blue. Touching blue is important, no doubt, okay? But there's no distinguishment in the skill set. And I think that's not fair either. You know, if I need somebody who's more competent, they should get paid more. And that's where I feel like, Amanda, you have, if you have experience, you shouldn't get paid like, you know, $100 an hour to deal with somebody with problem behavior. You should be getting paid like $200 an hour. But because you're going to be able to do more uh, focused work with that kid and you're going to be able to help extinguish those behaviors or reduce the the intensity or severity or whatever it is so parents have to push to want people to work with their kids that are more competent just like somebody who's boarded like a doctor like a subspecialist the BACB is going to need to say hey we need to do this because BCBAs can't do it all, okay? You can't do early intervention. You can't just do feeding. You can't be the best at it all, all right? I know there are some BCBAs that think they can raise Lazarus, but you just can't, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know? Focusing on something and being really good at it is, I think, what we should do. So, like, I'm a great insurance advocate, I'm not a great, I don't like to clean my, wash my dishes. I'm not great at doing dishes. I break dishes all the time. So I'm just going to focus on being an insurance advocate. Uh, we have more in common than I knew. I have so many dishes sitting over there right now. And I tell people, yeah. sometimes they ask, Amanda, how do you do it all? And I said, oh, make no mistake. I am not doing it all. Um, yeah. <laughs> right, you triage. So exactly. support systems are incredibly important as well. Um, how do you How do you go about, creating a support system or finding the people, if you will, especially in the community. And I don't just mean providers. I mean advocates, friends, neighbors, family. What, what does that look like? Okay. Well, you know, my family is really my autism mom friends because they're truly the ones that understand. I mean, I do have family in the area, but they don't get it, you know, and the, they're the best support system that I have. It's not that they're specifically coming in and helping me with my kid because, you know, I don't want to help them with their kid. I always say, like, I'm not watching your kid. You don't watch my kid. But it's, it's, it's just that moral support. And honestly, the easiest thing that I've – the thing that helps me get through every single day is a sense of humor. I mean, when my son is, like, biting me, or ripping something up, like, in the moment, it sucks. 
Like, I can't tell you that, oh, I sit there and when he's doing something, I'm laughing. I'm not laughing, okay? I'm really upset and if not crying. But then later on, I will call my friend and tell her something. And I'll, be, I'll take a picture of, like, the seat he ripped up. I'll be like, dude, it looks like he's like Wolverine or something, you know? And we'll be able to laugh about it. And that's the one thing that has helped me the most is my sense of humor. So. Nobody has quite like Zeta's sense of humor. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I, you know, I enjoy having you as part of as the community and as part of my world. And just take the opportunity, if, if you don't mind, I will, to shout out the Autism Law Summit. I think that we have probably met there and have met so many other uh-huh. um, wonderful as we would say, part of the Autism Ohana or our family there. And um, it's interesting because I was joking the other day uh, about my friends, and I said, I think all my friends are autism moms or dads, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a little bit unusual for the provider aspect. (laughs) So it's definitely about about creating that that group and that community. So it's, it's great to have you be a part of it. You know, I know something that comes up a lot in the conversations that I have with families and with advocates is, what does the future hold? What What's next? What do things look like? Um, and we talked about that we don't have answers for everything, and we're going to figure it out, and hopefully we're going to do a lot of that together. And the council is a big part of that. I think, you know, just giving things a name, separating out the the mm-hmm. severity of need and, you know, a call to action is a really great start. But where else do you see us heading, or what are some other considerations that, that we should be thinking as we move forward for the future of our community um i think well i think there are so i think there are definite steps that we should take to get us to somewhere that we need to be like for example health plans you know there's not a lot of evidence for aba for adults you know and even in california like while there's no um, age caps for private insurance we know medicaid doesn't cover at least in California, ABA past the age of 21, right? And so I think there needs to be not some studies, not necessarily on the effectiveness of like ABA. <laughs> um, not, I mean, of increasing IQ points or things like that, but like on quality of life for ABA after 21, um, on keeping people out of hospitalizations, on you know, uh, mitigating, uh, like, health risks, you know, people that, for example, like, my son is pre-diabetic. If they can address excessive eating and things like that through ABA, like, that'll draw down less health care costs in the future for him. So I really think there, as a community, there have to be studies done for adults with autism and not just the early intervention things. I think we need to have more providers that work with the adults with autism you know the whole population is just getting older and i really think the focus is going to start to shift a little bit that's where i believe it's going you know yeah i think you make some really great points and what what kind of resonated with me a lot too was the last statement you made about everyone's getting older and that means the parents the providers but our kids too and I say kids, even though some of the yeah. clients I work with are yeah. no longer, they're not my kids, I guess, technically, yeah. but you know, they're still in need of the care. And um, I, 
when I look at some of the most, or when we think of some of the most effective um, ABA centers or where we see the, the spearheading of advocacy, it came out of the need of a parent usually saying something needs to happen that's different, that's better than what we have. And that's been awesome, right? I mean, that's really gotten us with a lot of the funding and the research and the information. But we've, we've seen that challenge, of course, advocating in Hawaii where people would say, well, there's just no, there's no studies. And the answer to that, the reason why there are no studies is not because it's not effective. It's because there's no funding. And mm-hmm. people have a hard time working for free because, you know, rent usually is paid in dollar bills. So, um, <laughs> or some sort dollar, of dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of local currency. That's right. So, um, I think also you offer some good advice to behavior analysts, whether they're newly minted or they're veteran behavior analysts, if they're looking for areas of research, if they want to help, you know, pave the way and be innovative and and really push where we need to see change, um, you've given them an access point. So that's, I think, really important for, for the community as well. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a huge study. I mean, like, for example, if an ABA agency, you know, they're doing insurance funding. Like, if you have just let's take t- 10 kids, you know, and they, the parent can supply, like, what are their, their if they're pre-diabetic, if they're overweight, you know, and they can work on a program with them on feeding and how to not have them, like, graze throughout the day, you know what I'm saying? And work with a nutritionist and things like that and see what their actual, you know, sugars look like after a year. I mean, that's important. I mean, while it's not going to be a peer-reviewed study, you know what I mean? If we can just get, you know, a mass, um, a grassroots thing of those um, small studies to come up, then we can go for funding from from parents that can provide those funding. We have tons of parents that have, you know, trust and things like that. I mean, I know of at least two huge <laughs> trusted. I, I know of two trusted in, in, in California that would fund something like this. So not I'm just only saying that given, we, we have to start somewhere. Well, yeah, and not only have you given people an idea, you've given them more than just an entry idea or the access. You've said, hey, let's let's see if we can't get the 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 way to kind of make that research more robust and to make it you know start simple is what I say, dream big and start small. Yeah, do a poster session. Do a poster session for it, you know. (laughs) Well, and there's no reason why it couldn't be in a peer-reviewed journal. I think what you're, what you know, what the implication here is it doesn't need to be across five years and be the most rigorous and scientific university. It just, it needs to be solid science. It needs to be documented. And then we will have more to be presenting as we go and advocate for funding. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, like, NCSA started, National Council on Severe Autism, you know, we started just um, in December of last year. You know, right now we have over 5,000 people um, signed up on our website. And we have, like, we've been published on and things like that. So we, um, along with other agencies, have advocated, like, for CMS to change their guidelines because they were not looking at um, a segregated housing settings because they felt like kids with autism should be able to live in the community, like completely independent and not be able to live in a quote unquote segregated environment. For example, like seniors like to live in senior living communities, some of them, right? But Medicaid won't pay for that. 
but I think that would be great for my son. You know what I mean? So I think there, the more parents that advocate that we can start changing slowly government regulations, things like that, so we can get the, the NIH to fund these things. It's just it's a slow process, but we need parents to nag, and autism parents are great at nagging. <laughs> I like to say advocating, nagging, any of that is good, I think, from a thesaurus and <laughs> there. But, yeah, parents have the power. Um, that's been consistently something that I've observed in different states where we've done a lot of advocating. And there's nothing, I don't think, really more compelling than somebody saying, this, this is my child, This is I will move mountains for them. Um, it's oh. going to be an uphill battle, but I need you to do it with me, right? Yeah, I'm going to add that to my bio, Sherpa. and there is Veda's sense of humor I love it Veda Sherpa definitely should go on your resume Um, so your son your your youngest son right you said is 14 Mm -hmm. years old yeah Um, Muhammad Muhammad how has your your experience of the world's view of autism changed or not changed um, from you know your oldest you know 20 years old or or so um, over the 14 years that Muhammad, um, you know, that you've, that you've had him in your life, that you've had your whole family together. Have you seen a progression? Have you felt a difference? And, um, and what else is needed there? So interestingly, my 20-year-old got diagnosed when he was 16. And he, that was really what really changed my life more, uh, changed my view of autism more. So I had only known severe autism. But my son was, uh, Muhammad was diagnosed when he was um, 15 months. I mean, so that's really severe, you know. Um, So that's the only kind of autism I knew. But then my other son got diagnosed when he was 16. I mean, I always knew he was kind of like, quote, unquote, I mean, this is not the nicest thing. I was like, I always would tell him, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? (laughs) You know? And I just didn't understand because I didn't understand the other end of the spectrum. You know what I mean? And I hate to say this, like, my son was, like, you know, banging his head and doing all these things, my younger son, and I used to hear parents of higher-functioning, you know, kids crying about how their kid didn't get playdates, and I used to hear this and just be, like, rolling my eyes, I'm like, seriously, my kid is still incontinent, you know, and you're crying about a playdate, right? This is how I used to feel. I'm being completely honest here, but it wasn't until my other son got diagnosed that I realized how much all autism parents struggle and how much people also with autism struggle because it is just they have different issues, completely different issues. So really what it was is my other son with autism is what changed my perspective on autism. And that's the truth. And I have so much more compassion now than I used to, believe it or not. So. Well, thank you for sharing something I think that offers you up. You know, some of this obviously is very private or allows you to be vulnerable to others. And I think that that's wonderful to model. And, you know, I was kind of originally asking the question of like, how has society's view changed? But I, I appreciate, you know, more of, probably your answer, which is the perspective of how your view changed. And I mean, I I remember um, something different, but similar in a way that um, 
when I was in early elementary education, that's where I started, there was like, you know, a kindergartner and his crayons mm-hmm. were broken. Somebody said, you know, I don't care about his crayons. Like my car is broken out in the car. The teacher who had a bad day or something like that was yeah. staying in the lunchroom. And I remember thinking, or maybe I, we had the discussion where I said, a box of broken crayons is like your car being broken in the parking lot, right? It's all relative yeah. to your own experiences and to the struggles mm-hmm. and, um, so did things change for you with your um, with your older son after the diagnosis? Like, did that offer that information yield new things? I mean, obviously your perspective yes. and compassion, you talked about increase and, and such, but what changed for him? Um, well, I guess what changed for him is that now he understood what was happening for him. He understood why he was different, and I got what was going on all these years. It's because, again, I just didn't understand any other form of autism, you know? I was just engrossed with my other son, who was very intense, you know? But this is the thing. It's like I have Muhammad, who seemingly, you know, doesn't care <laughs> what people think. You know, he'll throw his hands from anywhere. But then I have my other son, who really does know he's different and does care. You know what I mean? In a sense, sometimes. He knows he's different, and, and that makes him feel – he doesn't feel – he he has strong feelings about that. So, I mean, and in, through my advocacy, I've now met parents, again, who, you know, have, again, there's people with autism that that I've met and their parents that have kids that want to commit suicide because they know they're different. So I have so much compa- more compassion now for the autism community as a whole because I just know we're, we all have our, our struggles are different but our pain is the same. So, mm, yeah. And I think we all need support. I think just the supports are different. And I think that's really also why NCSA is important because we can't all have the same support. And one person, like my son gets supports in college, but his supports are extremely different than the, what the supports that uh, Muhammad needs. You know? Muhammad's not going to be able to be integrated and live in the community. But Ibrahim will and is. And for anyone, I just wanted to add, um, Feda, for anyone who's interested in, in getting more information about the National Council on Severe Autism, that website is www.ncsautism.org. Is there any other uh, way that you think or resources parents should be accessing this information or how they can get involved or come forward and, and join the advocacy efforts? Like our Facebook page, that's probably the most important thing. Um, we publish original content and um, blogs um, all the time on our Facebook page. Um, they can sign up for our newsletter on our website. You know, I mean, we're publishing things. Whenever the authors we publish, we had an 80-year-old mom write a blog post about what's going to happen to her kid, you know, when she dies. We, ha- we talk about real issues that are really affecting our community. You know, there's no sugarcoating here. So <laughs> there is no sugarcoating, I tell you right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there are sweet parts to life. And then there are the pieces, you know, that are a little bit more bitter and they don't they don't deserve to be sugarcoated. I really appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us about this and to talk about your experiences. Before we end in our call today, this is the chance to stand on that soapbox and tell us anything that, that our call to action or just anything that you think would be great to share, I'd appreciate hearing. I don't know how, you know, how much of your viewership is parents and how much of your viewership or your listenership is behavior analysts. 
I mean, for the behavior analysts, I would say um, I would urge them to, you know, take on more um, challenging cases. I, I, I'm sure they're not like actively turning them away, but really going out of the way to accept adolescents and adults with um, autism. Um, I would, you know, hope that the BACB um, is actively thinking about creating some specialties. Um, whether it's feeding or severe behaviors or, you know, even sexuality, um, because we know we have some leaders in the field that are known to specialize in these things, but we need more, um, you know, more centers, obviously. And to the, and it's slow incremental steps, but we need to start somewhere. And to any parents that are listening, um, a sense of humor always keep that but I think one of the big things is that I always say to the parents it's like all the love that you have for your kid I just want them to take that love and turn it around and give it to their damn selves because we need to take care of ourselves too (laughs) well you know I don't know that this is necessarily the answer but we do have another episode on saying no and self-care, so maybe that's something that can give us some pointers. I find that um, parents and providers alike, when you are in constantly a giving mode, that you do. You forget to stop and to give that same sort of attention to yourself, so that is a really important part for our parents especially. Theta, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. So, is, what do you say? Aloha to say goodbye to? Yep. (laughs) Aloha. 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 (laughs) For anyone who's interested in learning more about applied behavior analysis, you can also visit www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.